So we've uh, traced how the higher life of holiness theology was developed and grew in the 19th and early 20th century. And towards the end of yesterday's session, we saw how more reformed or Puritan views were being put forward by the likes of Martin Lloyd-Jones and Jim Packer. And can I say thank you to all of you who have uh, stopped to chat to to me about this. It's been delightful just to chat about Keswick. I never get fed up of it. Uh, But also, so many of you bringing up little side issues. What about this? And what about that? And what is the links between this and that? And that's great. I only had these three sessions, so I couldn't uh, get into some of these things. So that's why I've sort of stuck to the holiness stuff. But in truth, as we said yesterday, uh, the views of these uh, new preachers at Keswick didn't have um, much impact uh, in the the pews. So you have Packer and Martin Lloyd-Jones, but what I'm saying is that they didn't have much impact in the pews when it came to Keswick holiness. Keswick was a powerhouse. Remember, it was funding and supporting missionaries all over the world. They were also prolific in publishing their books and transcribed sermons, The Life of Faith, and later renamed The Keswick Week, were sent all over the world, mainly to support and encourage missionary work. They also supported the many hundreds of regional Keswicks in this country and abroad. And as I said in the last session, people loved Keswick. They trusted Keswick. And by the late 1950s, there was a group of speakers that were really revered and trusted in the British evangelical world. And people would go out of their way to go and sit under their ministry. George Duncan, affectionately known as Mr. Keswick. I was talking to Jim about him this morning because he just said he had him to come and preach. Uh, is it 125th or 150th birthday of uh, St. James Carlisle? because he was the former uh, minister there. But then there were other characters you may not have heard of, people like Stephen Alford, uh, but then people like Alan Redpath, who maybe some of you will have heard of, Herbert Cragg. Herbert Cragg was the vicar of the church that I uh, I grew up in, in Blackburn, uh, Church of the Saviour Blackburn. From America, Paul Rees, and then there was a guy called Bertie Rainsbury, A.W. Rainsbury, just to name but a few. And I remember in the very, very early 1970s being taken as a a very young boy to hear Alan Redpath speak. And I still remember sitting in that side aisle of that church and listening to him speak. Or I remember as a young boy, as it went for on for a really long time. (laughs) (laughs) But it's interesting, we're 40, 50 years on from those times. And I think it'd be fair to say that higher life holiness has pretty much disappeared from the evangelical landscape in the UK. So what happened? Well, some of these Keswick preachers were beginning to get a bit older. And so the chairman, A.T. Horton, mentioned him yesterday in the last session, the principal of Tyndale House and chairman of the Keswick Convention Council, was responsible for raising up a new generation of preachers for Keswick. And he began to introduce them onto the Keswick platform in the early 60s. Among them, as I said yesterday, Philip Hacking, Dick Lucas, Alec Mateer, Ken Pryor, Eric Eric Alexander, and of course Richard Bewes. The first thing that they were invited to do was go and lead the young people's meeting. Let's try them out with the young people first. And then they graduated onto the main platform. It's interesting, in my conversations with Alec Mateer, he was really really fascinating to talk to because he told me that they were kept on a very very tight lead 
So remember the Monday to Friday God-given sequence. It was still very much in place in the early 60s. Well, they were sometimes given Mondays, Tuesdays, very occasionally Wednesdays, but absolutely weren't trusted with crisis night on the Thursday. And also, if any of them ever preached a sermon that called for a kind of radical change of heart, asking God's spirit to work in the lives of the congregation, one of the old God would come and tell them off. And as Alec Matias said, they said, remember, no crisis till Thursday. Well, the problem was, these guys on the whole were good Oxbridge educated, clever boys. And they didn't hold with this theology of higher life, second blessing holiness theology. Like I said, I was really privileged to talk to some of them, many of whom are now, of course, promoted to glory. But I was intrigued, so I asked them all the same question. And the question was this. Why did they accept an invitation to preach at Keswick if they didn't agree with Keswick holiness theology? Seems like a logical question to ask. Their answers support my claim as to just how influential Keswick was within the National Evangelical Church because they all pretty much replied with the same answer. The answer was this. Back then, it was the highest honour you could have to be asked to speak at Keswick. Apparently, and not surprisingly, Packer did say no. But of course, they began to teach holiness differently. So... Naturally, there began to be disagreements amongst the platform speakers. Back then, and until recently, until the early 1990s, there were two sermons preached each night at Keswick. Uh, So somebody would get up and they would preach a sermon, say it was Monday night, so it was sin in the life of the believer. Somebody would uh, get up and... uh, uh, and they would preach a sermon on a passage that they'd chosen. They'd then sit down and then would sing a hymn, and then uh, somebody else would get up and preach a sermon on sin, on the life of the believer. So during Keswick week, you might have different positions taken by different preachers on the same platform on the same night. One will get up to preach for 25 minutes, and then that will be it. Next, different uh, Speakers disagreed. Speakers disagreed. Alec Matea told me that sometimes they debated long into the night in the speaker's hotel. Of course, no one in the Keswick congregation knew there was anything amiss. But if you go through council minutes from the early, mid-1960s, you do get an idea of the problems that were rumbling underneath. The first big, if you like, moment that caused ripples was when the American old guard higher life speaker Paul Rees wrote a letter to the Keswick Council complaining in no uncertain terms that the distinctive Keswick message was being lost with these new fangled young preachers. Sadly, I couldn't find a copy of that letter. It did reference it in the minutes, but I couldn't actually find a copy of the letter. But when I interviewed Ken Pryor, he told me that copies of that letter circulated for years. The real problem was, as we'll see, the traditional Keswick speakers were actually a bunch of very, very godly men who genuinely wanted to preach to help people. 
But it's probably also fair to say that they weren't all very capable theologians, and they struggled up against more academically astute characters like Stott, Pirate, Alexander, Lucas and Matthias, who were not only good preachers, but also very theologically capable. So, of course, two versions of holiness teaching literally sat by side by side at Keswick. And as Alec Matia amazingly said, and I quote, the platform was, to that extent, divided. But not one of the congregation, for most, a ripe collection of old dears, seemed to notice. <laughs> Basically, this two-sided teaching which simmered under the surface held sway. The chairman, A.T. Horton, was a good leader through that time. He was chairman for 18 years. I tried to work out where he personally stood on the whole issue, and it's hard to discern. If I was to come down on one side, reading some of his sermons from Keswick, I'd say he leaned towards a more reformed position. But he didn't shout that from the rooftops as the Keswick chairman. When I asked Alec Matera about him, he said this. He knew his way around theologically. And while he professed to be Calvinistic, he actually and uneasily <coughs> occupied a middle ground. Well, despite opposition from the old guard, A.T. Horton held firm and the new generation of young preachers were still invited to Keswick. The watershed moment was definitely, definitely 1965. Because in 1965, A.T. Horton asked a certain young John Stott to give the daily Bible readings at Keswick. And A.T. Horton asked him specifically to tackle Romans 5 to 8. Romans 5 to 8. Now, as many of you will know, John Stott wouldn't tell any party line if he didn't believe it was scriptural. <clears throat> and, of course, he didn't believe the Keswick view was scriptural. Now, it is interesting to look at Stott's personal experience with this whole doctrine of sanctification. As many of you will know, Stott was converted under the influence of E.M. Nash and the Ewan Kant. Nash, or Bash, as he was affectionately known, uh, was a staunch staunch traditional Keswick man, good friends with many of the Keswick preaching team. And Bash used to write Stott a weekly letter encouraging him on how to live a godly Christian life. But as a new young convert, Stott struggled because he thought that this Keswick theology of Romans 6 didn't add up. His personal experience of holiness teaching at Ewan and in the Kiku at Cambridge didn't reflect the experience of his everyday life. So he took his holiness problem to Bash and their conversations weren't that productive. Bash wasn't a theologian. So he thought that the obvious solution was to take the young troubled Stott to a venerable theological institution in North London. And there he could meet with the principal, L.F.E. Wilkinson, another of the Keswick Old God, who preached there many times during the 1950s. 
I always thought when I had uh, lectures in the um, in the what's the chestnut room or the the beach room, the beach room that's it, where, where his picture was up on the wall. Uh, at, at, uh, I always thought he used to have really kind eyes. <laughs> I just thought his eyes looked really, really kind. Lots of people who were at Keswick uh, were at Oak Hill back then just said he was genuinely loved. People really loved him. Um, died very suddenly when you went to post a letter um, at the post box on the corner of uh, Green Lane that goes up to Oakwood. He literally went and posted the letter and then fell to the floor and died. It was very, very sad. So, Stott was taken to meet with Principal L.F.E. Wilkinson. And uh, he thought then, of course, Bash thought, well, he could have everything about personal holiness and the higher life explained to him. What effect did that meeting with L.F.E. Wilkinson have? Well, I asked Stott about that meeting, and when I asked him, he went silent for a minute, and he looked at me, he didn't say anything, obviously thinking of a diplomatic way to answer. Then with a shy and a wry smile, he said this, I believe Principal Wilkinson wasn't quite equipped to answer my questions. So in 1965, the invitation from Horton was made and Stott agreed to do the Bible readings. Interestingly, in the year before 1964, uh, Bertie Rainsbury had preached on Romans 6 and had taken the traditional Keswick line, experiential freedom from sin on the basis of the cross. But only 12 months later, Stott took a very different line. And I think Scott Stott knew just how important his Bible readings were going to be. If you read his biography by Timothy Dudley Smith, it talks about the journey that he made up to Keswick to do the Bible readings. Now, as you might know, Stott didn't drive, so he was being driven there. And his driver spoke to Timothy Dudley Smith and said that Stott was in the back of the car with his books and his papers and his Bible all spread out on the back seat, working and reworking things. He said he was scribbling and doing all this kind of thing. So I couldn't resist. When I interviewed him, I asked him about the significance of those Bible readings and what the biography said about that journey up to do them. He looked at me a little bit troubled and then he answered with a smile, if it's true, it would be rather shocking that I was still preparing the Bible readings on my way up to the convention. <laughs> so what did Stott do when he got to Romans 6 in his uh, Bible readings? Well, he started off by explaining what Christ's death meant. So far, so good in line with Keswick teaching. But when he went on to talk about the consequences in terms of our holiness, there was a problem. So if you remember our higher life interpretation of Romans 6 from Monday, well, Stott dealt with that interpretation phrase by phrase. And he spent a long time in that key verse, verse 6, and he divided it into three sections. Number one, we know that our old self was crucified with him. Second, in order that the sinful body might be destroyed. Third, in order that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. He says this, and I quote from his Bible readings, which are uh, transcribed in the yearbook of 1965. 
um, well worth getting if you can get all of a copy. You can get them quite cheap um, second hand, and uh, well, they haven't republished it, put it that way. But um, <laughs> worth reading. So this is what he said. I quote. Now the ultimate stage is clear. Sorry, I can't do a Stott impersonation. I'm far too northern for that. The ultimate stage is clear. It is that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. How does it happen? Well, look at the previous expression. The stage before being delivered from the bondage of sin is that the body of sin might be destroyed. Now, the body of sin is not the human body. The body is not sinful in itself. It is surely the sinful nature which belongs to the body. The verb to be destroyed here is the same word that is used in Hebrews 2 verse 14 of the devil. It means not to be extinct, but to be defeated. Not to be annihilated, but to be deprived of power. Our old nature is no more extinct than the devil. But God's will is that the dominion of both should be broken. And it has been. God's will is that the sinful nature might be deprived of power. How does that happen? Verse 7 gives you the answer. Because he who has died has been justified from his sin. So in other words, sin is still there. It is not eradicated. It is just defeated. Stott then explains that the word justified is often translated freed in the AV, the RSV, the NIV, and that's unhelpful and even wrong. The Greek word dikaiou, which occurs 15 times in Romans and 25 times in the New Testament, always means justified. So literally it reads, because anyone who has died to sin has been justified from sin. Well, he then goes on to distinguish the old self and the body of sin, verse 6, pointing out that the two are not the same. The body of sin is not the human body, but the sinful nature. The old self is what we were before becoming Christians. And he used the analogy of our life as a biography in two parts. Volume 1 ends with death in union with Christ. Volume 2 opens with our resurrection in Christ. So Stott says we are simply called to reckon this, to realise this, not to pretend it, but to realise it. It is a fact and we have to lay hold of it. So the traditional Keswick line was going far too far in calling for and demanding a second experience of sanctification. Stott summed up by saying that the secret of holy living is in the mind, not in some second experience. It's about knowing that our old self was crucified with Christ, verse 6. It's knowing that baptism into Christ is baptism into his death and resurrection, verse 3. It's reckoning or intellectually realising, verse 11, that in Christ we have died to sin. So as a consequence of this, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, verse 12. Unsurprisingly, Packer sums it up quite well in Keeping Step with the Spirit, where he says this. It is not a summons to a personal crisis that will change the quality of one's personal experience. 
It's just a plain, decisive statement of what Christians ought to do. With the help of God's Holy Spirit, we need to daily struggle against the power of sin in order to become holy. Well, Stott expanded his Bible readings into the book, Men Made New. I've got it here, Men Made New. And uh, he signed uh, my copy for me. Uh, there we are, John Stott, uh, March 03. And um, he signed it for me. I've got to say, he was more concerned about the lurid cover on this edition of it. He didn't really like that at all. This is a 70s reprint, as you might, uh, might be able to gather from the, from the design of the front. Uh, but he said, don't like that. <laughs> he probably didn't have much to say in terms of the design of the front cover of his book. But anyway... So, I've got to say, one of the things that I did uh, for my dissertation, and this is one of the things that Tim Chester uh, used um, for his... uh, In my appendix, I actually put together a table um, of uh, the phrases from Romans 6, what the old Keswick view was about those phrases, and how Stott interpreted them as well. Um, And, yeah, that's quite a a helpful... um, So, yeah, there you go. Have a look at that afterwards if you want. It's some good bedtime reading. Put you to sleep anyway. Okay, so Bible readings uh, complete. Then what? Well, there was a reaction. There was a reaction. The Autumn Council minutes from 1965 included chairman's correspondence. And one letter was from a certain canon T. Hughes. I think it's Tim Hughes. Uh, It was... And the minutes said this, Canon T. Hughes suggested that the emphasis of the convention this year seemed to be on holiness by consecrated effort rather than by faith in Jesus. Mr. Duncan, that's George Duncan, felt that there was some truth in this criticism. It was argued that there was a need for an opportunity to discuss the interpretation of Romans 6. Well, there definitely was. It was in 1966, the year after Men Made New, Alan Redpath decided himself to speak on Romans 6 and took a very traditional Keswick higher life line. He then wrote to the council and asked that his sermon be published as a pamphlet as a definitive understanding of that chapter. They didn't. One of the things I did in my research um, was to sort of go through as many council minutes as I could. And it wasn't a sort of dead issue. It was something that kept coming back. So what happened? Did higher life teaching just disappear from Keswick? Did the arguments rumble on? (laughs) Well, Keswick didn't sweep it under the carpets. And Keswick didn't ignore the problem. And they decided to hold a special residential meeting to hammer out differences. And that was the Mabledon Conference of 1967, held at the Mabledon Conference Centre. Now, if you read the official history of the Keswick Keswick Convention, Transforming Keswick, um, there is a brief mention of the Mabledon Conference, because it was an important conference, Uh, amongst the speakers. They gathered as many speakers together as they possibly could from both sides, the old God and the new. But the official Keswick history tells us that it was a prayer conference, so no minutes were taken, 
So we don't know what was said until now. <laughs> because I spoke to several who were at that conference and Alec Matias' memories of it were very vivid. Right down to who said what to whom. Even who shared bedrooms with whom. I can't read you everything. It is all in the appendix of my dissertation. But it does make fascinating, entertaining and amusing reading. I will read you a little bit. This is from Alec Matias. Mabledon was plainly designed to bring the disaffected, that's the reform boys, into line, though this was never stated. As far as I can remember, the talks were given on the God-given sequence by Francis Dixon. And on the way the convention operated and what it was for. As to the latter, the established themes of Bible preaching for biblical holiness was stressed. I remember Dixon's talk because he very cleverly brought the Monday to Thursday topics into an alliterative scheme which gave them a totally spurious sense of logical inevitability. <laughs> As ever, he spoke with engaging simplicity, but in such broad generalities that I was really incensed by being dragged all the way to Mabledon to hear nothing. And, to my grief of conscience afterwards, I told him so in the public discussion. <laughs> Exercises to which I generally contribute a dignified silence. He took my accusation of saying nothing without comment. But people like Paul Tucker and others were very gleeful over the interjection. I think all of us who were suspected of recalcitrance were put to share rooms with trusted Keswick hands. I got Leith Samuel, who said, as we were getting ready for dinner, that, I, that he hoped I was not among those who found problems with the God-given sequence. To which I replied, that if the council continued to prescribe topics and continue to invite me, I would continue to deal with the prescribed topic biblically, but that in my opinion, this railroading of the word of God was no way to run a convention. He didn't pursue it or raise it again. Leith Samuel was a very dear man, but he loved to be in with the top people. He was a great Keswick loyalist. But I suppose my own position and Pryor and Alexander's was an accurate representation of the whole. I would still go anywhere to preach the word of God. And where else would one then have a congregation in thousands? We mourned and moaned about the crisis men. Hence, Mabledon. And John Stott said exactly the same. I would preach on what they asked me to preach from biblically. No, it was an honour to be asked. I would go and I would preach as biblically as I possibly could. There is more to my, um, to, um, to Alec Matthias' stuff. Uh, I haven't got time to, to read it, but it is really entertaining stuff. Uh, that's some of the stuff that um, Chris Green said was dynamite uh, when he read it. But basically what happened was that the traditional Keswick holiness teaching simply began to fade. The old God were getting older. And there wasn't another generation of higher life guys following them. 
Keswick holiness didn't disappear overnight, but it's probably fair to say that over the next few years, it faded completely. Until 1975. That was Keswick's centenary year. That was the first year I attended. Billy Graham was invited to speak. But they also thought it'd be lovely to invite all the old guard back to preach one more time. But it had no real lasting effect. And so Keswick transformed from being a convention, which is all about getting the blessing of holiness, into a Bible teaching convention. In the late 70s, people like David Jackman were appointed to the governing council of Keswick. From the USA, people like James Montgomery Boyce and Don Carson and Ron Dunn were invited to come and preach. And eventually the God-given sequence of meetings was ditched under Philip Hacking's chairmanship in the early 1990s. I suppose important questions could be asked as to how Keswick Doctrine of Holiness and Higher Life disappeared and whether it was the right way to do it and whether it was the, you know, the right course of action. In his letters to me, Jim Packer said this, The change in Keswick was evidently intended to take place without any explicit awareness by its supporters that the change was being made. It was made by using Bible expositors like E.F. Kevin and then John Stott. It remains a question whether this was the most straightforward course of action. It is interesting that for some, the message uh, that Keswick has radically changed hasn't quite got through. I was incredibly disappointed at some comments made by John Piper about Keswick just a few years ago, criticising Keswick's holiness theology. His criticisms were at least 40 years out of date. I expect he got most of his ammunition from Andy Nacelli in the States, who wrote his PhD thesis on the Keswick pattern and holiness theology, without once stating or accepting that this was nowhere near where Keswick stands today. I think, personally, Andy Nacelli has been rather arrogant and rather unfair. When asked, he's point-blank refused to clarify the fact that this was old Keswick. And he's damaged the reputation of Keswick for those who have read his stuff particularly in the United States. As a Keswick historian, I am disappointed at that. I really am. I've got to quite admit, I am quite angry about it. My boss at Keswick, James Robson, not so much. He's a lovely, very gracious, godly man. And he responded to Andy in a very gracious way. He also invited Andy to the convention to see for himself. But he still, to this day, refuses to correct the misunderstanding. So in conclusion, what about Keswick's legacy? Well, negatively, it might be fair to say that Keswick's teaching has been a millstone for some people. Coming to Keswick, receiving the blessing, then not being able to sustain this higher life has definitely been a problem for some. Eric Alexander uh, told me about speaking to someone after a crisis meeting in the early 1960s. Uh, what happened back then was that um, you would have all the Keswick speakers sat on the platform. Somebody said the other day, they're all there in their nice dark suits and dog collars or ties, you know, etc. And they're all sitting rows uh, on the stage. But at the end 
of the meeting, all the speakers had to be available uh, to speak to anybody uh, who wanted help, uh, you know, more help, a bit of counselling or, or whatever at the end. So Eric told me about uh, this one evening where this uh, very, very troubled gentleman came up to him on the Thursday night and he said this, Reverend Alexander, I come every year, then I fail. And Eric Alexander replied, shake hands, brother, so do I. And the guy said, well, what shall I do? And Eric replied, well, first... Forget everything you've heard tonight. (laughs) Of course, Packer writes about it at length in several places. Even with its claims to be non-perfectionist, the Christian who's gained power over this sin can only feel dejected when they slip and lose the feeling. There's not much personal testimony apart from Stott's rejection uh, when it didn't seem to work for him. But maybe two are significant. First, I said the other day, Harford Battersby himself, like I said, after reading his biography, it's clear that he had several bouts of depression which are chronicled in his journals. These are all linked to his own personal sin. Second, back to Hannah Whittle-Smith. Remember how she, both she and her husband had to withdraw from the first convention? The reason was Robert having this sort of nervous breakdown. After recovering, Hannah continued her speaking engagements, but went off into all kinds of different heresies, including universalism. Her husband got caught in up all sorts of scandals that our tabloids would love. And towards the end of her life, she admitted that she had doubts about her book, The Christian Secret of a Happy Life. Of course, that didn't stop one American publishing house republishing it in 2007. But I think it's probably easy to knock Keswick, maybe even look down our noses, as people like Andy Maselli and John Piper have done, at what we see as wrong or misguided doctrine. And of course, we may be able to justify those opinions theologically. But I think it's important as Christians ourselves, who are trying to be godly, to see the positives as well. Without Keswick, there wouldn't have been some of the great evangelical missionary movements of the 20th century. Over the last 146 years, literally thousands of Christians have entered full-time service, either in this country or abroad, through the ministry of Keswick, including me, including Roger. God in his sovereignty can use vehicles which are imperfect for his good work. He uses us imperfect vessels. And I think he has, despite doctrinal error, used Keswick. We praise God that it has now been put right. But if you have, for the sake of argument, two opposing views of a biblical understanding of holiness, the traditional Keswick view preached for almost a century from the Keswick platform, then say a more reformed Puritan view taught in earlier days by people like J.C. Ryle, then later by the Packers and Martin Lloyd-Joneses, and eventually at Keswick itself. What do you do? Well, here's the big kicker. How do you strongly disagree with someone's position on the subject of holiness without being unholy about it. Strongly defending your position in a godly way without being arrogant or rude. 
Because very often, sadly, theological arguments can turn nasty and bitter. Even amongst Bible-believing evangelicals. We talked about that on the, on the online stuff yesterday, didn't we? So again, how do you strongly disagree with someone's position on the subject of holiness without being unholy about it? Well, I want to end my sessions with you with a call for all of us to think and pray through how we evangelicals disagree with each other in a godly, holy way. My very first boss at Keswick has become a really good friend, Jonathan Lamb. We've worked together several times. But he wrote a great little book a few years ago, and I've read it a couple of times, and it was called this, Tough Minds and Tender Hearts, Holding Truth and Love Together. That's the key to being holy in disagreement. I haven't got time left, but I will just finish with one more true Keswick story. I had a couple of fantastic hours talking with Ken Pryor, who was a regular speaker at Keswick in the 60s and 70s. His name has sort of slipped away from prominence. Um, He actually lived on Osage Lane, right around the corner from uh, Oak Hill College. Uh, before he um, moved down to Devon uh, to end his retirement there. He was one of the gang of new speakers that A.T. Horton brought in. And he told me that on several occasions he crossed swords, he crossed theological swords with Alan Redpath, who was very clearly in the traditional Keswick holiness camp. But after being vicar of St. Nick's in Sevenoaks, Ken rose to become the general secretary of Evangelical Alliance and his induction and commissioning service was in the De Montford Hall in Leicester and genuinely as he told me this true story he was almost choking back tears because on the day of the induction Alan Redpath if you like his holiness enemy at Keswick was leading a town-wide mission in Taunton in Somerset Alan Redpath spoke at an early morning meeting, then jumped straight in his car, drove all the way up to Leicester so he could stand on the stage of the De Montford Hall, lay hands on and pray for Ken before jumping back in his car and driving back to Taunton, speaking at an evening meeting. A godly love between two speakers who disagreed with each other. And I have to say, in interview after interview, grace poured out. I think that is a lesson for all of us about our own godliness. Because dare I say, sometimes as conservative evangelicals, we don't always get things right in this area. Theological fallouts that have turned bitter. I have a former colleague who was called in to sort out one of those big evangelical feuds. And he said this to me, you know, Philip, neither side have clothed themselves in godliness over this issue. There's too much pride and theological arrogance in play. That is sad. Because we're all called to be more and more like Jesus. Our holiness and our sanctification is a progressive thing as we become more and more like Jesus. And it's only then our lives will bring God the glory. Let's bow our heads, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for Keswick. And we thank you that you have used maybe an imperfect organisation.
to really further the work of your kingdom, calling so many into full-time Christian work. So we do thank you for it. And we also thank you for the changes that have been made. We thank you for what Keswick is now. And we pray that it will go on into the future to call many to faith, to call many into service. So we do pray for James Robson and his team as they seek to honour and glorify you through this really old convention. And Lord, what I've said over these last three days, we do pray that they will in some way have challenged each one of us afresh about our own godliness, about our own holiness, and that we would be striving to serve you and glorify you in and through our own lives. Forgive us when we've got that wrong and help us with your Holy Spirit to strive to be more like Jesus. And we ask in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Amen.